Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Well, hello, everybody out there. Is it is it really a week been gone by? Wow, man, how'd that happen? Appreciate you joining us here this weekend. Uh, once again, this is Rick Wagner getting it right here. Uh, your political Viking on the uh, KNZZ KGLN. 1100980 uh, and some other places out there. You can also find us on the internet and uh, on our podcast, which I appreciate you downloading. Many of you have downloaded it from Podbeam, and then you can also get it on uh, iTunes and oh, Prime, Amazon, you know, and all those other places out there. Places I don't even know, probably it seems like. But uh, I appreciate uh, you guys doing it. And uh, well, uh, I was trying to think about what to talk about today because there's so many things. And I was thinking about some of the things that people said to me this week and some of the concerns they've had. And there are many people out there, and you're probably one of or two of them, or whoever's listening out there that is uh, concerned about what's happening. These indictments, this uh, wild kind of out-of-control government we feel like we have. And it's not just federal government. It feels like our state and our local, in some instances, are the same way. And it doesn't surprise me, you know, I've talked about this many times, that you know, you get you get these folks out there, and they hear an idea, and uh, it uh, tickles a part of their little brain, and they think they should do it here. Rather, it made no sense when it was done someplace else, and even less sense when it gets done where you're at. But uh, they think it makes them progressive and out there and virtuous, and so they will subject everyone else to this idea to uh, demonstrate their own virtue. And uh, we've had that for years now, and. Uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be going away. It's not something that we can predict how it turns out very easily. I was thinking about that this week, and I know a lot of you also think about it, is uh, what are the contours of this? That's what I kept thinking. You know, sometimes you, you can't necessarily predict exactly what's going to happen, but you can sort of get a sense of the shape of things, you know, how it's how it's shaping up to be, we always like to say. And I'm not so sure that uh, I have a feel for that right now. I mean, I have a lot of scenarios in my mind that could be happening with the direction we're headed, but I don't have a good feeling about any of them that they're particularly high on the probability list. I wonder if some combination of them might be. A number of you said, well, my gosh, um, especially after reading this Victor Davis Hansen piece, which I thought was just excellent this week, and, and we posted that, you know, and uh, he wrote one, at, I thought, he said, uh, we need a counter-revolutionary that will stand up, bring back an orderly and humane society. And I think people uh, wonder, well, what do you mean revolutionary? I mean, you know, revolution? Well, I don't know. We don't need a revolution like the one we had in 1776, but we need a revolution in terms of attitude and commitment and firmness of purpose. Because we do need to revolutionize our thinking. And some of it is we just have to go back to the way people felt about their government in the past and be more watchful uh, in the future. Because what's happening is is different. Now, we've had many times, and Hansen writes about this too, uh, in our past where things have been dodgy on the edge. You know, uh, 1850, 
the Civil War, obviously. The Oh, the Reconstruction period was not as uh, easily maintained as sometimes people think. And then, of course, uh, the period in the 60s, we all know about that huge bulge of demographics that uh, some of us were part of, uh, the the baby boom generation that went through and which really a lot of it you could you could find by just how many people were involved in that or rather made up that group and so we see that and we recognize that there's been tumult and that it has kind of worked itself out somewhat although i would say that in some instances some of it hasn't worked itself out i still think we're we, we're still in the 60s in some ways because some of the radicals look back uh, on that with sort of a nostalgia. Uh, if they could just be that, uh, you know, the long-haired guy who was fighting the war and this and that, uh, that had uh, some causes that people could uh, rally around for something. Instead, we have all of these different causes all over the place, don't we? Uh, we have uh, people who are obsessed with their sex, uh, their gender, their gender identification. We have people that are obsessed with race. We have people that are obsessed with class. We have people that are obsessed with Trump. <laughs> Let's just say there's a lot of obsession out there. But it's interesting that it's pockets, isn't it? It's it's not nearly as universal. There's not just one big wave. There's just like a lot of smaller waves crashing in at the same time. That's why it makes it so hard to defend against a bit, isn't it? But it, it's all powered by the same thing. And for the most part, the Democrats, the far-left Democrats, not true Democrats like the Hubert Humphrey Democrats, uh, you know, those kinds of folks, uh, they, uh, the, the far progressives see all of these upheavals that they support as helping to break down the wall of, of the patriarchy society, whatever they believe it to be. And the more cynical of them know that, that that's not true, uh, that, you know, we've passed a lot of these barriers a long time ago. But if they can whip people up into a frenzy, do you think they're still here and pound away at traditional values and the things that tie parts of the society together that they think are in their way, they're willing to do it. So there's a recklessness about it. That's why it makes it kind of hard to see what's shaping up, because when you really look at it, you realize that there's not a lot of foresight in this. And I've said before that one of the things that gets disturbing when you look at politicians these days is, and this is not that like politicians in the past have been like, oh, I'm looking, I'm taking the long view in our society. But they took a little longer view of it. Now, people are willing to make the most outrageous statements, uh, foment the most outrageous events, all for a political advantage that may only be a few months away and leave those things in motion. And we have that now. We have a lot of things that have been stirred up over the last, well, I would say from the Obama presidency, that have just been you know, stirred up and started on their way and just let go. And we now have a situation where I think they're getting close to being out of control by the people that started them. Uh, we all know that you can get something in motion particularly a societal movement or something like that, that you can lose control of pretty easily. You know, my favorite example, of course, is, you know, revolutionary France, where it just kept accelerating and accelerating, 
And it's kind of like our society. It became, you know, I have to top the last person. You know, they, they, I, I have to, you know, have a stronger opinion and I have to do this and I have to do that than the last person to sort of show them I'm even more whatever, egalitarian, right? I'm egalitarian because I, I want to chop pretty much everybody's heads off, not just one or two. And so it, it overwhelms even the people that get it started. And I have a little of that feeling now. And I think that's why when you look out over society these days and you're just kind of wondering where things are going, it's really hard to see. Because a lot of the people that are driving these separate movements don't know where they're supposed to end up either. They're just all, they're just about the momentary destruction of what they think is in their way or what they've been led to believe is against them. The idea that a lot of people in society, and I see them all the time, who are largely indifferent about a lot of ways that people leave their lives, are not characterized that way. Far left characterizes people who are not overtly supportive of certain things as not just being indifferent. Uh, they are completely against them to the point where they have dangerous ideas and are a threat to the progressives. We have a hard time understanding that because most people just want to be left alone. If you want to do your thing for the most part, except maybe what starts involving young people, go do it. Just don't interfere with me. That, uh, that idea, it's not enough. And that idea doesn't even get out. When I read some of the things off of uh, the Internet from some of the far-left places, they're not telling people that they're against them. They're telling them that they're attacking them. It's a little bit like Charles Krauthammer said years ago. Uh, we think they're wrong, and they think we're evil. That makes for a whole different matchup, doesn't it? Yeah, Okay, we're back. Thanks, folks. Stick it around on the listen to the next part of the show. I appreciate it. So as we were saying, getting the contours of the way things are headed is tough to wrap your head around because I'm not sure the people that are driving these various uh, bulldozers into our society really know where they're going. They're just uh, stuck on what's right in front of them and what they imagine is right in front of them. What is fascinating, and most of you people do know this, but is how retrograde some of the ideas they have about our nation are. I've seen a couple of surveys now, I and mean, some aren't even very old. Some surveys about uh, race relations were taken in 2016, and the people who thought that we had made great progress and things were relatively positive was substantial. We take the same survey today, and you're lucky if you can get 30% of the people to agree. Not that there's problems, because we certainly see problems developing, but rather that there's a problem with racism. Right? That's changed in just six or seven years. And I think that it has a lot to do with Obama. I think that Obama started this shift, and other people have talked about this, and I think it's very true. He started this shift away from class, the idea that, you know, it's the rich people against, you know, the usual Democrat talking points, which you still hear sometimes, but not nearly as much uh, about class as it becomes about immutable characteristics. Because, you know, class can change. You can get rich. You can win a scratch ticket. You can have a great idea. You can build a, you know, a computer company in your garage. 
But you can't change your race or your sex or, in some cases, your ethnicity. And so if you focus on that, you can divide people up so they think they can't they can't change, they can't get out of it. If you convince them that that's been made to be a very negative thing in society because your political enemies are made it so, if you can convince people of that, and they don't think there's anything they can do about it, it makes them much more upset because, like anything, they don't feel like there's a way out because they don't, they don't think they can change that. And Obama turned things around so that it wasn't that people were rich versus poor, but oppressed versus oppressors. And you could be very wealthy if you're in a certain classification and be oppressed. And you could be very poor and seemingly powerless if you were in a different classification and be an oppressor. That's a pretty big difference, isn't it? And what's funny about that is, I think in the past, people would have said, well, that's ridiculous. Some of these people have no power to oppress anybody. How can you say they're oppressors? They don't employ anybody. They, you know, they just get by, maybe. I mean, there's a lot of situations like that. And how can they be termed oppressors in the face of someone that has tremendous influence, power, and money? Yeah, we've managed to convince that, haven't we? Uh, we've managed to make people who have, some of whom have no real, apparently real world skills except a sport, and convince them that getting paid six, seven, eight, ten million dollars a year to play a game is an oppression, that they're an oppressed group. Now, you also, if you tell people this, we all know this, if you think about something long enough, you'll find it. I mean, if everybody tells you during the day that you look tired, even if you weren't tired that morning, you start feeling tired at the end of the day. Uh, if somebody asks you about something like, uh, oh, gosh, you know, did uh, is that a dent in your car? Over there? You'll look. And if there's anything at all, you'll find it. And even if there isn't anything, you'll wonder if maybe the sun isn't just right. You know. We're all impressionable that way. So if you tell people loud enough and long enough that something is being brought against them, they'll start finding it. And it's especially attractive when you think that it is an easy out. If you haven't worked hard enough or paid enough attention or just, you know, really calibrated yourself in some way to for success and you run into some failure, like most of us do in our lives at some point, uh, you just assign that not to, I need to buckle down and do this differently or... Uh, find something else to do. I don't seem very good at this. Uh, you would just say, well, no, I mean, it's because of this uh, bias against me. And it takes a lot less self-examination, doesn't it? I mean, none of us really like to look at ourselves and, and find our faults. As, as important as we all know that is, it's not much fun. It's a lot easier to say, well, I'm great. Uh, it's everybody else that's holding me down. So it, it's very convenient for that, and, it, and it's a hard thing to fight back against. It's a little bit like when people say in policy that it's hard to fight free. Right? I don't mean like fighting free of something, but I mean it's hard to fight policies that want to give people something for free. 
That's very difficult. We know that it that it harms society. We know that it can't go on for very long. You know that it creates all sorts of problems if you give too much of it, really very much of it at all. But we still have a hard time turning it down. So it takes a lot of intestinal fortitude to be able to find these things, to see things about ourselves and understand that getting something without working for it in the long run is probably not going to be helpful to us and not how we grow as humans. So if you think of it that way, you understand why why it's so attractive to play that off. And it's a, it's, it's a brilliant strategy, right? I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense if you're trying to convert people to your way of thinking. You uh, offer them help for things that really there's not that much going on against them. But everybody wants free help, right? <laughs> I would say, and there's a bunch of different variations of this, that getting something or help from the government for free ends up costing you a lot more than paying for it through life experience. Now, there's a few exceptions for that, but they're usually with people who are already wealthy. I mean, we see that now. We see all of these companies that are popping up uh, all over that are trying to take advantage of these green subsidies and things like that. And even with subsidies, like Proterra, that truck company that Biden visited a few months ago, that just looked, took bankruptcy, uh, even with subsidies, uh, even with uh, tax incentives for people to buy the product, Sometimes they still can't make it, but there's something that they do get out of it sometimes, and this is something you should always examine if you see these stories. See if they got any loan guarantees. Even if they don't get money directly from the government, has the government guaranteed to pay whatever loans they get? Think how nice that would be for you and your business, or some a business you'd like to start. If you go to a lender and say, look, I don't have a lot of, uh, I don't have a great business plan here and I don't have a lot of experience and, uh, you know, I don't really have a, a plan to say, you know, in terms of looking into the market and who my customer is and stuff. But what I do have is a guarantee from the government that if I start this business and it doesn't work out, they'll pay my loan. And remember, banks make money off loans. So if the government's not only going to pay my loan back, but, you know, pay the interest on my loan and this and that, then the bank is has a hard time turning that down. And they give loans to people who, if they walked in off the street, didn't have a loan guarantee, they'd, you know, they'd be out the back door the second they opened their mouth. But now they get money. And it's especially true with people who already have a lot of money. We all know about Solyndra here in Colorado. And they are able to engineer large amounts of money and then it's siphoned off on just waste, lots of times into big salaries for people, and, uh, and you know perks and all that sort of stuff. And then when it goes south, they just get to walk away. They don't have a they don't have personal guarantees on the loan. And it's it's interesting to look at how often this happens with some of these green deals and all of these things that are subsidized, and everything to do with this climate change stuff. We are guaranteeing to pay off people's bad ideas or to pay off ideas that people don't think are really all that successful, but they're willing to take a chance on it because eh, it makes some money and, you know, we'll see if it happens. And if it doesn't work out, what the heck? You know, it's uh, not our problem. We're not going to take a hit on our 
uh, credit. We're not going to pay anything back. We're not going to go to bankruptcy or anything. The company might go into bankruptcy, but we don't have anything to do with it. And you know, the loans will get paid back. So as as a lender, I mean, you have to say that's not a bad deal. On principle, you should say I don't like that. The principle of it's all wrong. But as a business decision, not hard to make. So we undermine the market when we do that. So that's just one of the, a couple of these bulldozers that are pushing around society. We, we're deforming the, the market, the economics of supply and demand, and uh, that successful products move forward and unsuccessful products diminish. We're, we're changing that. And then at the same time, people who are involved in the market and uh, in labor, we're giving them excuses to say why they don't work Everybody, thanks for sticking around down there in the bottom of the hour and sweeping back up to the other one. We appreciate you joining us here. I was wondering if uh, maybe I was a little too uh, maudlin or something in the last couple of segments as we were discussing stuff. I was, I don't know, maybe taking a little more of a psychological twist to uh, what's going on in the country because I, I think that's what it is. I think there's a lot of people out there, uh, particularly on the left, and of course you always have a few in every political movement, seem to have a lot in theirs, on the far left especially, who uh, have uh, let things get right to the edge and then just kind of tumbled off in terms of uh, their mental health approach to uh, things. It's What they think are the most important things in the world are things that, in the grand scheme of things, don't matter nearly as much as they seem to think. And the things that really matter, they don't seem to care about at all. So it's a little difficult to predict what's going to happen. And like I said in the first segment... Guessing the contours of what's going to come about, say, in the next 10 years, is gotten more difficult than it usually is. I mean, like I said, nobody could predict the future. But you can kind of say, well, if things continue on this trajectory, I expect things to kind of look like this. You know, I mean, with some degree of, uh, I don't want to say certainty, but, you know, 60, 70 percent of this is what I think that where we're headed. Am I going to know what kind of inventions are going to be and this and that? No. Could there be something catastrophic or wonderful that happens and I don't predict it? Sure. Will aliens come down and give us great technology and we make some leap forward? Possibly. That would certainly throw things off. Will they come down and, uh, you know, take over the world? That would change things too, wouldn't it? But in general, you have ideas about what's going on. It's more difficult now when you feel like people are engaging in erratic and unreasonable behavior. Like I said, it's difficult to discuss something with someone who who is adamant about something that is intensely personal or sort of a fanatic kind of uh, movement. And that thing does not seem to be particularly important to the movement forward of the rest of society, the nation, whatever you want to, want to say. So it's a little hard to figure out how that's how that's going to go, because it doesn't feel like people are moving in their self-interest or that's not really true. They are so obsessed with their self-interest, but only a very small part of their self-interest, because I think I think about it in terms of uh, our Adam Smith invisible hand thing. Everyone acting in their own interest, move society forward. Well, if people are acting only in their own interest in a very narrow part of their life, a part of their life that has really not much to do with the general commerce or 
uh, moving society forward in some general way, particularly towards becoming more productive or becoming smarter or whatever you want to say, does that still hold true? I don't think it does. I think that our friend Adam Smith had in mind that people were discussing, when they were discussing this amongst themselves, they were thinking of people who were trying to better themselves in general. Rather more money, more personal satisfaction at work or whatever, and not some very narrow piece. And people who have an obsessive revolution around something, I don't mean revolution like a societal revolution or the French Revolution. I mean that they revolve everything around one small segment of their personality and they hold on to that above everything else. That's not healthy for them and I don't think it really helps society in a particularly good way. So that's why it's, it's sort of difficult out there. I mean, and everything changes anyway, right? We can go back to our friend, the great uh, Greek philosopher Heraclitus, uh, who was the proponent of there's nothing constant but change, you know, in his great saying of uh, time is like a river and you can never step twice into the same river. So you go down to one of the rivers near your house and, yeah, you think you're stepping into the Hudson or the Colorado or whatever. Yeah, but the water's moving all the time. It's not exactly the same. Put your foot in it, put your foot back in it a minute later. His point is it's not the same river. It, there's change. So we live in a in a eddy pool of time like that. And you look back and you think of all the things that have come and gone in our world and how short-sighted our own ideas about time are. I mean, think how much the world has changed, the Western world we're more familiar with. Let's think about the great cities of Miletus or Ephesus, the Ionian Greek cities that people thought would be there forever. They're just ruins on the coast of Anatolia. We think of it as Turkey now. What of the great civilizations that all have been all over the place? And many of them are gone. Some of them, we can't even figure out what, what they were. Nobody thought that was going to change that much. But civilizations, even when they're hollowed out, don't necessarily have to fall. They can change. And they can morph into other things. They can respond if they're flexible enough. I believe our society in the United States is flexible enough. I mean, it's challenging right now. Let's not Let's not kid ourselves. But it is. And so you just have to step back and take a look. Some of it is ridiculous, the way people are so obsessed about narrow parts of their lives. Right now, it's their sexuality. Or I don't even sure. I, uh, there, there are terms that seem to have something to do with gender and sexuality that I have not even heard a satisfactory definition of, much less an example of. Things people say out there. What is it? One of the uh, oh, one of the game show hosts out there came out as pansexual. I think. Okay. Now, does that mean that you dress up like Peter Pan? Does that mean you like to play the pan flute while you're out flirting with people? What what exactly does that mean? Because it never gets made clear. But they become obsessed with it. And of course, there's many people out there that just say it because it gets reported, gets keeps them in the news, makes them feel relevant. We do live in a society where just being known, no matter what it, it is for many times, is lucrative. You can make money off a name even if it doesn't make sense to you, if people know who you are. So we see a lot of crazy behavior out there. Well, speaking of crazy behavior, let's look at uh, what's going on in politics a little bit. I want to bring to everybody's uh, attention. You've heard a lot this week about these Ohio special election results. I thought it was an interesting thing because... 
what it looks like, it's the same thing that happens in a lot of states. It happened in Colorado here and some others where you get a kind of a block of voters that don't necessarily agree with one another on 90% of anything, but they agree on something, but for different reasons. In Colorado, I believe that we ended up passing a lot of bills having to do with drugs and legalizing them because there were people that thought they could make money off of it, didn't care how. There were people that wanted to use drugs, didn't want to go to jail for it anymore. And then there were people who believed that it was not the government's business at all to regulate this, that they were very pure libertarians. They didn't think that it's the government's business to make things like that illegal. They were in jail for it. Now, at least one of these three don't really get along with the others much of the time. But on this issue, they did, and it came together. I don't believe it was a healthy thing. I'm uh, sort of a Republic libertarian. <laughs> I have some libertarian tendencies, but I think there are some... I have perhaps some more guardrails than others do, and I don't think that it was a wise choice to essentially legalize some of these drugs, and certainly not like psilocybin, where they can't legalize it, but what they've done is made it so that nobody in the city and county of Denver is going to arrest you for it. Now we have hallucinogenics that can be distributed by... It's very difficult to tell exactly whom... If you look at the bill we, that was uh, rather the special election, well, it wasn't a special election, the last general election results on, on that uh, referendum, it's hard to say exactly how that works out. I mean, there's some general contours to it, as we say contours, but I'm not exactly sure who gets to do what. But nevertheless, those folks came together. Now, in Ohio, we heard the special election that they wanted to make it more difficult to amend the state constitution in Ohio. They wanted to make it a 60%, sort of a supermajority. I always think it was supermajority, a little more than that, but nevertheless, a supermajority, they thought of it, uh, before you could amend the Constitution. And many times when you have that on the ballot, it is conservatives and Republicans are supporting it because what they're getting is a plethora of bizarre referendums that are put on the ballot, some of them hard to understand what they're going to do, uh, be it by large urban groups. And if it's too easy to st- stick it in the Constitution so that even uh, the legislature can't change it, of course, the state I'm in, Colorado, the legislature is worse than, well, you know, I'm trying to think of their worse, but they're, what's worse than that? Not many things are as dumb as they are. Uh, some city councils, sure, and things like that, but um, for the most part, yeah, they're. Uh, they're not up there in the skyscraper of uh, IQ. But nevertheless, most of the time, you're trying to not get rid of the ability to have plebiscites, but you're you're tired of getting everything in the world put on the ballot to get passed by people who don't really understand it because there's enough of a momentum uh, in, in our case, Denver, Boulder, you know, that sort of string of things to get it on the ballot and then... They get a lot of money going, and so sometimes you you have conservatives saying, look, it needs to be a little harder to amend our Constitution. If you want to pass a statute, you know, put a law in the books that can be changed later on, much easier than the, than the Constitution, then that should have one level and the Constitution should have another or something like that. So you say, well, why are, are the Republicans fighting this so hard? Well, it's because there was a lot of pressure in Ohio, and some of you know this, to try and get a constitutional referendum in the state 
legalizing abortion, setting some standards that a lot of uh, conservatives didn't agree with. And there was a huge amount of out-of-state money and pressure to try and defeat this because the people who were wanting to get the abortion thing on the ballot realized that it would be very difficult for them to get 60% of the the vote to pass it. But they thought they might get 51. So it was a very topsy-turvy kind of thing. And uh, the attempt to raise the, I guess we can call it the... uh, event horizon for getting a uh, constitutional amendment did not succeed. And this was thought of as being a real bad situation for the GOP in Ohio. And everything I read from the left-wing press is, well, the GOP in Ohio now, I have to regroup. It sounded like they just took, you know, a really hard beating and this and that. I think that once again, it was a little bit like we talked about before, there were people who were a little afraid of the idea of raising it too much because they could say, well, what if we want to do something? It's all fine and good to, you know, get excited about this one thing. But what if we're trying to you know, do something and it's the barriers too high and uh, the legislature starts doing crazy things and we think we need a constitutional amendment to stop them? Now we're now it's a pretty high bar to get over. So I think there were those people as well as the ones that want to get this abortion uh, constitutional referendum on the ballot. So uh, I think it was more of a happenstance of individuals who wouldn't necessarily agree on a lot of things, but didn't necessarily agree on with it, with everybody else in the GOP that they should raise this. And I don't think the GOP in Ohio is in anything like the trouble that the media would love to have you think like, oh, this is a sign that the that the Republican Party in Ohio is really on the skids. And it's not that at all. So, I mean, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Now, I know it's concerning for people who are upset and also concerned, as I would say, over the amendment that they're trying to propose. But this, the failure of this raising the supermajority on the Constitution is is not something that indicates the GOP and uh, Republican areas of Ohio, which has been turning more red the last couple of elections, uh, is in that kind of trouble. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. And then I wanted to bring up uh, something that happened in Colorado here. Some of you know that Colorado went on another spree. And look, folks, they're going to do this every single time they meet is mess with guns. They just are. They're going to mess with guns. They're going to try and mess with uh, internal combustion engines and try and make it harder and harder for you to have a vehicle or something in your yard that runs on internal combustion and have to have something that is from electricity that just flies through the air like a butterfly. No one knows where it comes from, right? So this last time they passed several laws, but one of them uh, that has been challenged in court very vociferously is this idea that you need to be 21 to buy any type of firearm. Now, in Colorado before, and this is what the left says, well, this was a mistake because we had, we raised the, um, to 21, we raised the level to 21 to buy a handgun, but you could still buy a long gun for, uh, if you're 18. And of course, the most violent weapon in America is the AR-15 or something that looks like it or something that has a handle on it or it might be black or, you know, a handguard. I mean, those, all those things make them infinitely more dangerous than if they didn't have them. I mean, that's how they think. Well, 
Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, and I think some others filed amicus briefs, said, well, we don't think that making it impossible for someone under 21 to buy a firearm is constitutional because the Constitution doesn't make that differentiation. Right? The Second Amendment guarantees people who have citizens' rights the protection of the Second Amendment. And we've pretty much decided uh, that 18 and up is that. If you're 18, you can make a contract and be held responsible for the contract. You can vote. You go in the military. There's all sorts of things that you can do. And people say, well, the drinking age isn't that high. You know, we've said the drinking age is 21. You can't, can't drink 18 anymore. Any alcohol. Well, but that's different, isn't it? Because there's no constitutional amendment. There's no Second Amendment that guarantees the people the right to drink <laughs> as a citizen. There used to be an amendment that said that there wasn't a right to drink. Remember those days? If we go back and watch the movies, it's uh, Al Capone made a lot of money back then. But there is a constitutional amendment that says that citizens have the right to keep and bear arms. And the argument from the Gun Owners Association essentially was, look, we've decided citizens, people can participate in government. Uh, now, you, of course, you're a citizen if you're 16 and you're born in this country and a few things like that. But I mean in terms of citizenship, participate in voting and all these types of things, we've decided it's 18. So if we've decided that, we think that the constitutional right in the Second Amendment should apply to people that are 18 and over, not arbitrarily placed at 21. So that's a, a pretty interesting interesting point, isn't it? And the federal judge, for once, uh, put a stop to it temporarily. They gave them a preliminary injunction. Now, an injunction is something that makes people do things or usually stops you from doing something. The injunction says that the state is enjoined from enforcing this particular law the legislature did, uh, while the case proceeds. And in order to get an injunction, the court has to find that the people that are asking for it have a reasonable or, shall we say, more likely than not opportunity to prevail on their lawsuit. So what he is saying is that he believes that people that have brought the lawsuit that says it's unconstitutional have a reasonable or more than 50% chance uh, prevailing on that, which is pretty significant. Now, we also know that appellate courts are fickle. And if this were in, oh, I don't know, the Ninth Circuit or one of the circuits on the eastern seaboard and some federal judge did this, it would be hard to imagine that the uh, one of the circuit courts of appeals, which are above the federal district courts, uh, wouldn't find a way to get around it. But here, I don't know. The Tenth Circuit is pretty square. I mean, they're right on about a few things. Uh, and everybody's wrong sometimes, but I'm more right than not. And uh, one of my uh, friends from law school is on the uh, Circuit Court of Appeals, and that's where Gorsuch came from, you remember. Uh, so uh, we'll have to see. But I think that is a very encouraging development. And if we decide that in the Tenth Circuit... Here's this case, uh, ultimately, after it's been presented to the federal district court, because this injunction doesn't mean they win. It just means that they're stopped from enjoying it while they present the case. Because the idea is that if they're allowed to uh, 
go forward with it while they're arguing about it, that it would do some damage, irreparable damage. So the court found that, too. So it's all very good for the people bringing that. But it still has to be decided in the court, and if the federal district court decides a way and it's an appealed to the Circuit Court of Appeals, then they will weigh in on that. And if they weigh in on that, that's going to make it very difficult for people, certainly in the jurisdiction of the Circuit Court of Appeals, the Tenth Circuit, which is a few of the states, from passing anything like that. I will say eventually it will probably make it up to the Supreme Court because other states have done this too. So we'll see how that goes. But it's very encouraging. The last thing I thought we should talk about, and this is encouraging as well. As you know, and we discussed this a little while ago, everybody in the world on the left thinks that everything should be electric. Electric everything. Electric cars, uh, electric uh, hedge trimmers, electric weedy. Nothing should be running on internal combustion engine. Electric lawnmowers, uh, electric toilets, whatever else may be out there. And they have no idea of how electricity is generated, of course, and uh, they would never be able to tell you, most of them, and they certainly would be horrified to learn that most of it is generated by internal combustion engines. Some small part of the United States is by nuclear generators. Now, nuclear generators run on steam. Huh. Right? And because nuclear fission creates heat, and heat creates steam, and it turns turbines that create electricity. Well, if you're going to have something that demands tons of electricity... You need First, you need infrastructure to get the electricity places, which is what's happening in California. They haven't done that, and uh, they don't have enough electricity being generated, and what they do generate is going through power centers that are just not, aren't built to handle those kinds of loads. But the second thing is you need to be able to generate nuclear power because that's by far the cleanest, simplest, and easiest way to generate electricity. Well, nuclear fission, which is what we use now, uh, splits and... Is uses uranium and has a it splits atoms right, it's fission it splits atoms, and uh, it creates energy out of splitting heavy atomic nuclei into smaller ones that releases energy and that makes the heat. But we've had some experiments out there now where they've been producing nuclear fusion, which is sort of the holy grail of this. Nuclear fusion uh, actually takes lighter things and forces them together and makes slightly heavier ones like hydrogen to helium. And that means that the things that you need to dispose of are not radioactive anymore. And it creates a tremendous amount of energy. And we've had two experiments now that have been able to make it here in small situations. It takes an enormous amount of pressure and heat to do it. That's very encouraging for all of us. So let's look up. Talk to you later.